welcome to the second episode of Brewing Microservices. Um, this is a podcast where we center our discussion around um, a paper that we pick randomly that we haven't read, uh, any of us, and uh, we just kind of have a brief conversation from there and, and see where the paper takes us. Really less about the paper and more about the discussion that happens. And uh, I'm joined by uh, David and Scott today. So um, I'll just briefly introduce myself and then I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Christopher Micklejohn. I'm a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon University. Um, where I primarily work on microservices, but in the past I worked at companies like Bash and Mazer and Machine Zone working on distributed protocols. And um, so I kind of moved away from the protocol space and now I'm kind of strictly in the services space. So, um, David? Hey everyone, uh, my name is David. I'm an engineer in the Azure Functions Group at Microsoft. Um, I'm told that I have to say that I speak for myself, not for my employer. Uh, and other than that, uh, what, you know, what you should know about me is that uh, I'm a nerd for obscure programming languages. And um, yeah, I'm excited to be here. Scott, do you want to go? My name is Scott lustig Fritchie. I'm currently a, uh, a staff software engineer at BlockFi. Um, I was a, started off life as a Unix systems administrator for roughly a decade and then uh, was uh, working at a nonprofit ISP um, uh, and responsible for administering a lot of Usenet news servers that were all melting under the load and as a nonprofit had no budget for uh, for upgrading the disk arrays. So it implemented a crazy idea that someone on the internet had had uh, for treating files in the file system as cyclic buffers for storing messages in transit. And wow, that worked well. And um, I've been working on storage and distributed uh, systems ever since, much to my chagrin and regret because storing state is evil um, and no one should have to do it. But then there are these database things that we all want to store our state. And so um, that's what I've been working on for the last 20 years or so. I've heard about these things called databases. Uh, okay, so the paper we picked today is um, a paper from Amazon that was published at SOSP in 2021. Um, it's kind of joint work with a bunch of academic institutions in Amazon science. It's uh, entitled Using Lightweight Formal Methods to Validate a Key Value Storage Node in Amazon S3. Um, authors are James Bornholt and uh, a collection of other authors. I won't name all of them. The list is quite long, but we'll link to the paper in the show notes, obviously. Um, so to get started, um, David, you want to just give us an overview of what this paper is about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this paper is about a lot of things. Uh, it's fairly long, but the TLDR is that uh, it describes, um, I suppose, an engagement from uh, the, the formal method folks at Amazon with uh, the Shard Store Engineering Group. Uh, it seems that Shard Store is a new key value storage uh, implementation for S3, uh, the popular Amazon database. Uh, and it seems that this engagement is all about incorporating lightweight formal methods in the day-to-day -day development and release uh, workflow of uh, Shard Store. So they describe some of the lightweight formal method techniques they used, why they used them, how it worked out, the impact, um, and more or less outline a path towards um, doing more of these engagements in the future. So I really enjoyed, enjoyed it uh, and have a lot of thoughts on, um, on it. Okay, so now we're going to do, um, maybe we'll go around and kind of just say some quick first high-level impressions about 
what we thought about the paper. So maybe we'll start with Scott. Um, in, in the introduction, there's this very lovely sentence um, early on. It says, production storage systems such as shard store are notoriously difficult to get right. Like I, I put a, a big star and circled it both um, because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, database systems are, are terrible and file systems are a close second or maybe file systems are worse. Like it's tough to, it's tough to figure out. So getting, getting all the storage bits that you can rely on 100% of the time instead of like five nines percent of the time or six nines is, is just a really big deal. So um, formal methods are really useful for, uh, for uh, proving properties about your system, but at the same time, um, they are notoriously difficult to use for, I don't know, notorious or just difficult or, you know, something in between. So using systems like QuickCheck, although they didn't say that they're using QuickCheck, QuickCheck, um, uh, they do cite it, though. They do cite it. Well, they're using tools a lot like it, um, but but to actually say that they're using the you know the Haskell one um, uh, or uh, you know or the ones we're familiar with in in um, in Erlang uh, in Elixir world, they're not. They're they're all their tool chains are uh, in Rust, and they very intentionally wanted to use only a single language, Rust, for all of this um, uh, formal methods work. Um, and uh, but uh, we're going to have a lot of shoutouts to to QuickCheck and QuickCheck Lite uh, systems. Um, I had a note to myself to talk about fuzzing and the difference between um, uh, data generations for 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 property based testing and versus fuzzing. Um, and I guess I I've, I've burned my minute there. So there um, that's a really good one. From remember that note because I I took a lot of notes and that one I actually did not take. So. Uh, I uh, yeah, that's awesome. I do have some thoughts on it, but but anyway, um, we'll let David go. Yeah, um, let's see. First impressions. I mean, I I, I really enjoyed the paper. Uh, I you know I, I've been hearing a lot about these the introduction of formal methods at AWS, uh, and I read a lot about it on Twitter and in general. Uh, and I feel like this gives me a peek onto how that's actually working and. Uh, there's some of the systems that, that formal methods are, are being uh, used for. Uh, so I, I was kind of kind of going into this paper with that perspective, kind of like, what's the recipe? Like, how can I replicate something like this in my team or something like that? Uh, I, um, you know, uh, I think this paper has something for everyone in a way. Like, I think that if you're a, a light a formal methods person, you know, uh, you can you can approach it from the perspective of, um, okay, well, how you know what are the trade offs that I need to do with respect to uh, bug finding uh, and and scalability? Uh, but if if I want to do something like this, I think that if you're a databases person or storage person, you can look at this the design of uh, shard store and and learn something from it. Uh, and if you're you know looking at it from the more you know how do I get more formal methods into my daily engineering practice, then you can get something like that as well. So um, I had a good time. Um, so I guess w w the way we should kind of approach this is, we'll just kind of frame the three contributions and then we'll have to provide some background on Shard Store. So, so the three kind of core contributions are these executable reference models, which we'll talk about, um, which are ways of writing the semantics or specifying the semantics as in executable code using the same programming language um, that use like a simpler implementation. Now this idea, we can, we'll talk about this relationship back to QuickCheck because early versions of QuickCheck very much 
uh, early versions of Erlang Quick Check um, definitely kind of addresses addresses this problem of a reference model. They kind of call them state machines, but um, so we'll kind of we'll kind of draw that comparison. Um, and then basically, they use these reference models to do some property based testing for functional correctness. They use um, this combined with uh, stateless model checking for crash consistency and uh, current and verification that uh, everything's safe under concurrency. Um, and then the whole idea is that um, they train a bunch of developers to use these reference models and be able to update them so that as they're building new features into the software and like updating the software and changing how the software works, these reference models can be easily updated. So it's not somebody who has to like update an alloy specification or a TLA specification. It's, it's, you know, in their case, like Scott said, it's a Rust program where you can just update this kind of reference model and then you can use property-based testing to verify refinement uh, of the, of, um, to ensure that it refines the reference model, your implementation refines the reference model, which basically means that it only the model basically uh, captures the allowed transitions or whatever that your program can can make. Um, and then there's a bunch of talk about how this is applied and and kind of the code coverage stuff. Um, so maybe uh, we should start a little bit with. So we'll st we'll go in the order of the paper. So maybe. Uh, Scott, do you want to just explain a little bit about shard store? Um, I feel like there's probably before we can explain crash consistency, we kind of have to explain shard store and the LSM and why crash consistency consistency matters. Um, so maybe you want to take the you're the storage guy. Oh, okay. So um, so shard store um, is the is the the part of the overall um, S3 um, storage service that is responsible for managing storage on a single disk. Um, and um, they don't have big blinking neon lights that say, we're bypassing the file system. Um, they, they do say that, that occasionally um, that they're, they're dealing with um, block devices directly, um, but um, uh, they're bypassing uh, the file system. So they have to do all the work of managing the, the disk storage, whether it's Winchester disks or, or SSDs, uh, I mean, the, the, the introduction says that um, they're supporting diverse storage media. Um, but <clears throat> the, 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 the total interface is not so simple as using the write system call or the read system call uh, like you would be doing with a, a regular file on the file system. Um, and for managing that storage, um, they're using an LSM, a, a, a log-structured uh, merge tree uh, uh, hash data structure. Um, and they are implementing that directly on top of, uh, of the block device. They, uh, they have this abstraction, um, which is pretty common um, in, in my experience with, with file system uh, uh, related patient implementations using extents. That extents are, <clears throat> are contiguous chunks of, of disk space. <clears throat> um, for for some definition of of, of big, um, typically um, tens of megabytes to to uh, a few gigabytes. I can't remember exactly what the paper says for for what their extent size is, but they did mention that a typical disk might have um, thousands or maybe it was tens of thousands of extents total. Um, and as uh, as an S3 user who is completely unaware of any shard store things uh, happening inside the system, as a large object or any object um, is being uploaded in S3, 
um, uh, higher levels of S3 are dividing um, that data into chunks and giving them to individual machines in some S3, uh, um, uh, S3 um, uh, storage computer um, somewhere on the planet. Um, and then um, when the machine receives those, then um, there's another layer that decides which disk um, uh, or which uh, shard store is going to be storing that particular chunk. That chunk is written, uh, is appended to an extent that has some free disk space, uh, has some free space, pardon me, uh, available uh, in it. And then um, a log structured merge tree is updated to keep track of where, um, where in the extent and which extent um, that chunk of user data was written. Um, and uh, the, the LSM, the Lodge Structured uh, Merge Tree, is itself written inside of extents in the same way that the user data is. And so there's this, there's this metadata bookkeeping that also needs to happen uh, for the LSM uh, to keep itself sane. Um, as they're bypassing the file system um, and dealing with the disk device directly, they have um, performance problems um, that they have to solve themselves because the file system isn't uh, a traditional file system isn't going to do it for them, uh, and uh, they also have crash consistency problems. Is that they are now responsible for dealing with the state of the disk device after a crash? It could be a nice crash. It could be a total kernel panic. It could be power off. Um, you know, all of those things happen uh, in data centers everywhere, um, and so now they're responsible. Uh, for fixing this. Um, and so they have to basically do their own file system checking um, to recover from these crashes. Um, and the technique they're using for performance, uh, uh, presumably for performance improvements, is called soft updates. Um, it appears in a very small number of file systems. The only one I'm uh, aware of is that FFS in, in FreeBSD um, has been using soft updates for a long time. I don't, I don't know if can there are any explain, other... Can you explain what soft updates are for those people who don't know, or just the general yeah. idea? The, gen the, the general idea is that you write data to disk in such a way that at any point, um, the writes can be interrupted, say, like by a power failure, um, and the file system will be in a consistent state, um, which... Sounds really cool. It sounds like a great idea, but it's really difficult to implement. And uh, Kirk McCusick um, was the primary implementer in, in FreeBSD for, for its file system, FFS. Um, and one of the things that, even if my memory serves correctly, is that he had <clears throat> the implementation will actually, if, if some operation is for file system metadata is partly in progress, but it, requir it requires writing to several different places on disk at once, there are times where the file system will intentionally undo one of those steps so that if a crash happened at exactly the right time, that the, the data would on disk that survives the crash, power cycle, whatever, um, will still be consistent that a file system check can come along um, and, and fix the problems. Um, and so all of a sudden, you have to be very aware of what order you're writing things and what order things right. are flushed to, to disk. And the paper spends a lot of time about talking about, well, we're using soft updates, so we have to keep track of a global order of what things get, must be written before what other things to preserve the invariant for, um, for uh, soft updates that, um, uh, you know, essentially a, a crash failure 
um, uh, can leave the disk state in, in who knows what, what writes in flight did and didn't make it persistently to the disk device. But when the disk device is powered back on or whatever it needs to, to reboot, that it will be in a consistent state. Um, and uh, maybe I'll stop there and if you have further questions. I, I just want to say, uh, <laughs> you know, I wish I wish we'd have talked about this before I read the paper because you just clarified so many things for me. Uh, when I was reading this, I, you know, I kind of had to do that trade-off of like, okay, how deeply do I really want to understand <laughs> how shard store works and how how much searching do I want to do on this background? Because uh, yeah, this, I mean. You can go arbitrarily deep in some of these definitions. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people don't know this soft update thing. That's why I think maybe we'll talk about it just a little bit more. So, Scott, uh, maybe you can just comment on one, one line here that they say, so, um, to, to clarify maybe for the listeners. So they say soft updates avoid the cost of redirecting writes to a write-ahead log. So maybe you can say a little bit about, um, I don't know, speak to a little bit about that. Uh, well, sure. Explain like, like I mean, what the trade-off would be, I, I guess, for, for somebody who doesn't understand the trade-off of using the write-ahead log. Sure. I mean, um, in, in the general case, um, uh, to do things safely from the point of view of, of like a, an Aries-style write-ahead log or you know, what, what most databases do with their write-ahead logs, is that you first write the data to, to the log um, and get it safely persisted there. And then um, if you're using something like a tradi most traditional file systems or uh, B-trees, that the updates that are in that log involve uh, making updates to your disk uh, or whatever storage device in various places that you can't do atomically from like a, a hardware point of view. Um, and so... Um, if those operations get interrupted, where you update part of a, of a B tree or you update part of a directory uh, in some part of the file system, like when you're, when you're renaming a file and you're moving it to a different directory, you have to touch several different areas of the disk. Um, and if those get interrupted, then how do you recover the state of the, of the file system? And one way to do that is to go look at the log. That log has um, presumably fully persisted history. Um, uh, data that specifies what operations were going to be happening next in various scattered parts of, of, the, of the disk device. And if necessary, upon recovery, those operations can be done again. Um, some of them will be no ops, some of them weren't done in the first place, and so they get done for the first time. But when recovery is done, all of the writes, all of the updates that should have happened do get happened. And then the file system or the database is in a sane state, and then you can continue normal operations from there. Um, and again, just to reiterate the point, is that one of the reasons why this team has 40,000 lines of Rust code is that they have to do all of the soft date update implementation as well as doing all of the interfaces dealing with the disk devices that, again, the operating system file systems uh, would normally be doing for them. Right. Um, yeah, and they say here, like, involved in a write they have this example in the paper where they're doing a write and they have to like write the data to the extent they have to like write the uh index entry you know and flush the lsm tree and then they have to like update some metadata in the tree to point to the new data that they just wrote on the disk um and so this is why this is challenging because a single write 
basically, an append, a single append, I guess, is the API that they effectively are exposing here. You have to do all of this stuff. You have to write the extent. You have to update the tree. You have to like map a pointer um, in the tree. Um, and so this is why this crash consistency is is a problem. And uh, they motivate a lot of this is, you know, uh, Amazon S3. I-, I thought that this was incredible. Amazon S3, I didn't know, is, is 11 nines. <laughs> That was kind of shocking to me. I just, I was like, really? That's wild. Um, Availability or? um... 11 nines of data durability. This is right in the section that says, why be crash consistent at the end of the, uh, at the top of, uh, I guess it's page four. Page four, right before section three. Amazon S3 is designed for 11 nines of data durability and replicates object oh, data yeah. across multiple storage nodes. Yeah, they use, they use the English words rather than the numbers, right? But yeah, sure enough, there it is, the first sentence. Yep, 11 um, nines. And so, yeah, and so they're really concerned. They're doing data replication across storage nodes, so they're not really concerned with consistency from the point of view that we're normally thinking about, like a lot of the consistency in the sense of distributed consistency across multiple nodes and keeping objects in sync, but rather they're looking at um, this consistency of the data on a, on a single node. So it's really testing a single node and the write and read operations on that single node. Right. And even more specifically on a single disk, on a, on a single, on a single disk. Yeah. Uh, Cause they're actually isolating yeah. disks for like customers and tenants and whatever. I forget what they say. The reason they're keeping the separation, but the, there's some like disk separation. I think, don't they say they basically, this is for uh yeah, each disk is an isolated failure domain. I thought they said something about uh, that it being done for like multi-tenancy too or something, but I, I could be remembering that wrong. Um, cool. Okay, so that that's like the so this is kind of the motivation of of the crash consistency testing. Um, so that was good background, so you kind of understand the complexity of shard storage, a single single disk uh, management for the data storage. So kind of moving ahead. Um, we'll kind of get into the, the validation and um, the reference models. So um, maybe we could talk a little bit about, about what the reference models are. So um, David, maybe, or Scott, want to say something about the reference models? I, I can speak a little bit to it. I mean, um, you know, more, more or less, you know, the, the paper introduces chart store and, you know, all of this background that we just went over, and it's clearly complicated. And, you know, the authors more or less start by saying, like, Hey, that was complicated, right? So we need formal methods uh, to make sure we, we implement this right. And so, um, you know, one one of the ways they do this is that they ask the engineers uh, to implement these very simple distilled versions of uh, what shard store should do, which are these reference models, uh, which um, they use lightweight formal methods to more or less validate that the behavior of the simplified model is refined or is you know consistent with uh, the behavior of the the actual implementation uh, that they're actually deploying, um, and so I, I I understand this to be a, a fairly standard uh, way of going about this. This sort of like refinement of you know a simpler model to to a more complex one, but this is not my expertise per se. Uh, but perhaps one of the things that stood out to me about the when the the, the way they went about this is that uh, they really wanted the reference model to be written in Rust and to be written in the same language as the, the actual shard store system. And, and what they call out is that 
you know, they, they really want engineers to take over the modeling process even after the this engagement is over with. And so they more or less, you know, do this trade-off where, where they're like, well, there's all these other tools where, you know, usually specify these reference models in some other language, some other system. And we don't think the engineers are actually going to maintain that. So they just make it as simple as possible for them, even perhaps extend the state of the art of, of some of the ROS tools that can be used for this uh, formal method checking with, with the reference model. Uh, and try to integrate this and meet them where they are uh, with, with the tools they're using. So I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, so at the end, they specifically call out this idea that uh, as code is being updated and like features are being built and stuff, they don't want to have to have a, a, a subsequent engagement with the formal methods team. They call this out in the end in their kind of evaluation in their discussion of the integration. And so this is kind of a key point is that they want something that developers are able to maintain themselves. Um, mm. Yeah, and re reference model... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, there's also a bit at the end um, in what they say that 18% uh, 18, 18 of developers or 18% of the, of the model code has been subsequently updated by the regular team developers rather than the formal model experts. Mm -hmm. um, and they see that as, as a good first step, and they hope that the team will do a bunch more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so the reference models here are... are executable specifications effectively they're rust modules that or maybe module isn't the right term but like a rust program effectively that that has the exact same interface as the interface that they're testing but it's simpler right so uh, you would you would basically have a simpler implementation so we have a bunch of experience with this me and scott we worked on something very similar and early and quick check of doing this um and so the idea here is you might, for instance, if you were modeling a key value store that had uh, a linearizable register, for instance, what you would do is you could model that as like a dictionary, for instance, in your program or a hash map or something. And you would just update your keys as you went along. And you knew that if your system, your much more complicated system that's doing all the disk management itself, um, like, you know, if you wrote some keys there, you could always assert that. If you know, if if I have a key in my sequential implementation, I, I effectively should have that same key, and I should read the exact same value in my more complicated, completely managed managing the disk separate implementation. Right. So this is the general idea: is that the pro you you define when property based testing, you have this reference model, then you have your implementation, and you define some property. And so for a linearizable register, it might be that. For any keys I didn't write, those keys aren't there. I get readers. For any keys that I did write, I get the last value that was written according to a sequential linearized execution, for instance, or something like this. Um, so that's kind of the general idea of the reference model and how the reference model is used with property-based testing. Yeah, and so, I mean, the for a reference model like this, um, for a key value store, it's really embarrassingly simple. I mean, you can take a... A, a Java hash map or or a dictionary in Python, and like with just a few lines of code, that is your reference model implementation. That that's all you have to do. Um, and so, when they when they say here in the paper that our our, our total uh, model test code was what one percent or something the size of the original code, um, uh, I I would definitely believe that that it doesn't take much code to build these really really simple reference models. Right, right. Um, I want to talk a lot more about reference models. So before we get into the, um, 
Yeah, there's all sorts of fun things or directions we can go with this. I have a million notes. Okay, so before we go into the conformance checking section, which is how is which is how they actually do this is section four, where they talk about exactly how the property based testing works and how they generate the operations and how they bias the distribution of the operations and do all this selection. Before we get into the, any of that, I want to take like a really big step back and I want to talk about property based testing and how property based testing has been used. So we can kind of see the ideas throughout the history of kind of, of property-based testing at databases. We can see the ideas that are like kind of the core ideas. Um, in this paper, they don't cite a lot of the existing work. So we'll kind of draw some of those out so you can see the conclusions. Just because uh, I worked on QuickCheck for a long time. Uh, Scott has a lot of experience with QuickCheck um, in multiple programming languages, in fact. And, um, and uh we also uh, at Basho had the had the benefit of actually being trained by John Hughes, um, who who's one of the co-inventors of, of QuickCheck, as well as he had a company building Erlang QuickCheck, which was widely deployed in, in a number of settings. They used it on cars. They used it on databases. They used it on message queues. They used it on a ton of things. So there's a lot of interesting experience we can draw from there. So I'll say so I'm going to let Scott talk a little bit about Erlang QuickCheck. Um, I'll briefly just say kind of a few words about Haskell Quick Check, and then um, then maybe we can talk a little bit about um, kind of the state machine style of testing and kind of just iteratively kind of talk about more and more complex applications of Quick Check. So, um, Quick Check is kind of the first version of of property based testing, effectively. Um, this original paper for Haskell, I don't really remember a lot of it. I remember a lot of it's type driven, but um, you can specify like arbitrary ways of generating a value of a particular type, and then you could assert some sort of property, um, and it would generate operations for this using generators. So the idea might be like if I have a list and I reverse that list, um, I might have some property about list reversal, or for instance, I might have a property about um, insertions into a set. For instance, like I could say generate random integers and put them into a set. And I, sh I should ensure that no matter how many times I insert an element into a set, then the property holds that the set will only have one instance of that element. For instance, this would be a, like an extremely trivial example. You can make list reversal is another one. Uh, list deletion or insertion is another one. So if I, uh, if I insert an element into a list, that element will be in that list unless it has been deleted uh, as many times as it was inserted in some sort of sequence. So these were the types of properties we're talking about. They're kind of invariants that hold over a data structure with respect to some sort of operations that are uh, either automatically figured out through type information or other annotations or uh, manually specified. So this is kind of like kind of a really high level overview of the Haskell one. Um, but the Haskell one really didn't deal with state. So when you start dealing with state, that's where things get really interesting. And um, Erlang QuickCheck, which started out as just kind of a Haskell version uh, for Erlang, because Erlang is also a functional programming language. Uh, it, is, it is not a typed functional programming Well, I guess it is typed, <laughs> weakly typed, I guess. But, not statically, yeah. Yeah, uh, but, but, uh, but in Erlang, the interesting programs that they wanted to test had state. And so I feel it's kind of a tragedy that there's no paper on Erlang QuickCheck. There is really no like definitive Erlang QuickCheck paper. Um, really, what you have is a bunch of academic papers about applying QuickCheck to other systems. And unfortunately, most of these papers have been published at the Erlang Workshop, which um, suffers from the fact that not a lot of people who aren't Erlang programmers <laughs> read it. That's, that's number one. The readership is rather low because it's an extreme. If you think Scheme's a niche community, Erlang is 
worse than that. And it also has the unfortunate um, problem of being co-located with ICFP, which is a functional programming conference where 90% of the papers are about types. <laughs> and so uh, it kind of unfortunately just it, it's in this space where it just doesn't get a lot of visibility, but there ends up being a lot of really interesting work there. So I will take a little bit of time to talk about Erlang Quick Check. I'll let Scott give a kind of an overview of, of Erlang Quick Check's approach to stateful testing. And we'll start with statums. I guess yeah, we also could um, talk about FSMs after that too. But <laughs> yeah, because um, um, because they're definitely related. Um, this gets back to my earlier statement. If it survives edits about uh, looking at fuzzing, um, when we talk to people who don't know about property-based testing, more likely they've heard about fuzzing. Um, and um, I don't know if there's sort of a canonical paper or canonical definition of fuzzing. So I'll, I'll go with what I know, and, and you can either jump in right away to cut me off, um, or you can correct me after, after the fact. Um, my understanding of fuzzing was that it was first applied to testing protocols, you have some sort of data that's been serialized that goes across a wire, of Ethernet, or whatever internet um, plumbing stuff. Um, and um, people wanted to verify that the server implementation or sometimes the client implementation of this protocol uh, was correct for, for very limited definitions of correct. And it first started off like, can I get a security exploit? Like, or can I cause the server to crash? Like, you know, that kind, that kind of problem. Uh, denial of service or, or um, you know, uh, uh, privilege escalation, perhaps, would like be another thing. And so you already had examples of, of, of uh, the protocol, uh, of the protocol bytes, and you would put a man in the middle uh, um, that would take the, the, the correct stream from a, from a regular client, and then you would mutate it somehow. You would, you, would, you would drop some of the bytes or you would repeat them. Maybe you would repeat them like, 500,000 times to, to try to overrun a buffer on the server or something like that. Or you, or you change randomly some, some percentage of the bytes and then send them to the server and see how the server reacts. And maybe the server does something unexpected, like it crashes and it stops responding to future requests. And then, you know, you, you declare victory, right? You, you did something bad. Um, and so it was always taking something that you knew was good um, and, then, and then mutating it somehow. And at first, those mutations... You had no idea. You had no idea about the structure you were doing. You were just intent. You, you were you were adding noise in the same way that you would add noise to like a radio broadcast. That you could add a hum, or you can add someone playing the drums, or something like that. And at some point, you can't understand the the spoken voice that's in the original radio uh, recordings, right? Um, and so, um, but people realized that this kind of purely random stochastic mutation of bytes or duplicating bytes or dropping them or repeating them. Um, uh, it took a hell of a long time, right? Um, that um, if a protocol is complicated, that, you know, maybe you need to make a change um, uh, very early in a protocol that has uh, multiple uh, volleys of, you know, client server, client server, client server. Um, and it's only a combination of like the first, the, the first volley and like the fifth volley that ends up doing something bad. So under, understanding the, the structure of the data in the protocol, rather than just treating it as an opaque set of bytes, once you knew the structure, then you could say, oh, 
I know what a frame header looks like. I know where it's positioned. So then I can play games with the size of the, of the frame header and create, you know, it's much easier to create a buffer overrun um, if you know the, the structure of things. If there's a prefix that says these two bytes, say the length of the string that, I, that is going to follow immediately, and then, you know, you start playing games with, um, with those two uh, length bytes at the beginning, then your opportunity for mischief, if you're trying to cause a tra uh, crash or privilege escalation or some kind of thing like that, um, uh, you're much more likely to, to find a problem. And so then you, there's this whole, ra uh, whole uh, set of tools that they have partial or if they have full information about the, the structure of the network protocol that they're screwing around with. Um, and then you find a lot more bugs that way. Um, and um, there's something in the paper um, that uh, one of the examples they, they have um, for, for data corruption that ends up this really, it's like a really niche case where um, it's really difficult to describe, but the, the odds of, of mutating things just randomly, um, the odds are so small that they might have seen this bug if they were doing everything completely randomly. They may have seen this bug once in a person's lifetime. Like that's how mind-bogglingly big um, the problems yeah. are. So when in, in the property-based testing world, we talk about data generators. Can I, just, can I comment on taking... something quickly? Yeah, go ahead. I, I just want to kind of just give a couple other examples of fuzzing. Um, yeah, so we see fuzzing all over the all over the place. Um, serialization is a big one where you try to find bugs and serializers by fuzzing, and you you have a very simple property that should hold true, which is the double round trip, right? You serialize, you serialize, deserialize, and you want to ensure that you get the same uh, that you get back. And so we see fuzzing fuzzing uh, used in there to kind of find bugs. Uh, this is both for binding bugs in serializers and also for finding security vulnerabilities in serializers. For instance, if you can change an object a little bit, you might be able to, you know, uh, I know there's been cases in Java. I know, I, I think I just saw a paper at Ixie about this in Java where you can mess with the serializer a little bit and you can see objects that you weren't supposed to see because uh, the runtime reflection lets you access things that you're not supposed to when you change what the object structure of the thing you're using is. So you can kind of suss these out through, through fuzzing. Um, in web protocols, um, there's actually a quick check paper about this, uh, but in web protocols, there's schema-based fuzzing, right? So you might take an open API or swagger definition of a web API and then just kind of fuzz, but it's not random fuzzing, it's informed fuzzing because you know the schema of requests, but maybe you're fuzzing by like changing like the the values of particular strings. You know about like either the payload or the URL structure and you try to find security vulnerabilities or other vulnerabilities this way. We see it with command line arguments too, trying to find things where command line arguments aren't parsed correctly because somebody didn't rely on some standard library to do command line parsing or they wrote something themselves and you can find security vulnerabilities this way. So fuzzing has been applied. Um, it's a massive research space. It's been applied to like every domain. Um, and it's really the challenge of the recent, one of the core research challenges is figuring out, like Scott was saying, it's precisely figuring out the transformations that you can make with the minimum amount of knowledge to get high probability of finding bugs, right? You're really optimizing for this. And depending on the program, you probably have different heuristics for doing that. So that's kind of, um, just a, a brief foray into fuzzing. We'll see that fuzzing shares a lot of similarities to quick check. Quick check we can think of as uh, it's which Scott is. I'll let Scott resume talking about generators. It's kind of a smarter way of generating data input. 
Um, but it's more focused on like testing systems where they have some sort of API or transition system and you need to follow the rules. Where fuzzing is a lot of like following the rules, but you're also trying to break the rules in some places to like kind of like find serializer bugs or whatever. So Scott, I'll let you continue kind of talking about kind of generator, but maybe before you talk about, yeah, no, I'll just let you go. Yeah, continue about data generation. Sure, that's fine. So if, if we use my, my own private definition of fuzzing, where you take some input that is probably good from some piece of software, and then you, you mutate it somehow and then send it down whatever path it normally takes and then, and then try to look for bad effects. Um, if that's the definition of fuzzing, then data generators, they don't, they don't have this, um, they don't have the, these examples of good input. Instead, what you give them is a, is a definition of the structure. So something very simple you'd say um, uh, is, uh, is a, uh, let's say, an 8-bit integer um, that as a, as a data type uh, at a very primitive level and you know, supported by a lot, by a, a lot of languages, um, that uh, a generator for, uh, for an 8-bit um, value would presumably be a, a uniform random distribution of all the possible values of 8-bit of integers. And for, uh, for strings, um, it could be um, a string of any length. It could be zero, uh, a zero-length uh, string um, in whatever, uh, whatever language you're, you're working in, or it could be 57,000 terabyte string, um, potentially. Um, some languages do really terrible things when you try to create a, a multi-terabyte or petabyte string. Um, uh, but you're given information either explicitly from the programmer, uh, like an Erlang quick check, or implicitly using the type system from a language like Haskell, where you can, you can say, well, if I want a data generator for a particular function, in Haskell, I know the type signature for that function, so I know the types of the arguments. And eventually, you get to the point where you get down to uh, primitive types in the, in the language, um, and then you can create generators for those primitive types, and then you start gluing some of them together with tuples and funds and whatever else, and suddenly you can create very, uh, very complex data structures. But the point here is that data generators, when you build them this way, the data is always correct. It's always well-formed according to the rules of the system. Um, so unless you very intentionally craft a generator to create bad data, you can't create the sort of garbage data or, or garbled or malformed or illegal data in the same way that fuzzers, especially the really early ones that just would you know, change random crap. Right. Um, um, so you have to, with quick check style generators, um, you actually have to go out of your way to create truly bad malformed stuff. Um, but that's also a useful exercise in, in how you think about property-based testing um, in that you get very intentional about what the, what the generators do as input to your programs that you're trying to test. Right, yeah. So, um, so maybe you can just use that to lead us into state, how this relates to testing stateful systems, right? So why are they, so in, in the our very simple example I gave you of like having a list where you're adding and deleting elements out of a list, let's say you just want to ensure that your list has all the elements or rather, actually, even let's use the more interesting example of the key value store. So you have a key value store. Um, right. In this case, you're, you're, you're natural. So your, your first 
instantiation of generators in the testing of a key value store is you're going to use generators to generate names of keys, let's say, and you're going to use generators to generate da like data payloads. And those payloads could be whatever, right? It could be random right. binary bytes, or it could be, you know, you could do JSON structure, strings, doesn't matter, right? So you're going to have a generator for your keys and you're going to have a generator for your data. And that's going to be the, the things that you're doing the data generation with. But the natural extension from there is that you also can use your data generators for a grammar of functions, right? So you, would, you have your key generator, your data generator, your payload generator, let's say, value generator. Value and generator. then you have like your grammar for commands. So you might generate a... You think of commands like you can model them anyway, but like just for conceptually to think about it, you can think of it as like a enum of I'm going to execute a get, or I'm going to execute a put, uh, a get or a put or something like this, right? So you're using your generators in terms of generating program structure or program operations, commands, functions, and you're using your generators also to generate uh, the data you're going to work with. Right. Yes. Um, and so. Um... If I'm testing a key value store um, with quick check or related um, property-based testing, uh, like um, like this paper talks about, um, the, the 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 AWS group released a new tool. It's it's reference number forty-seven in the in the bibliography as a tool for Rust. Um, oh, that was for stateless model checking. Sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, they used a Rust a existing. <laughs> they used an existing property-based testing system for Rust. Yeah, yeah. so. Um, so um, you're exactly right that the, the first step is the generators for your keys and generators for your values. And depending on the key value store, um, there may be additional metadata involved that you want to store along with the key, like insert time or whatever else. Um, and so at some point, you need to be intentional about, well, what happens if I create a generator that says that this, this thing was inserted at 57 BC, um, you know, or, you know, uh, something like that. Um, but let's just stick to to very simple keys are um, uh, are um, binary blobs and the values are binary blobs. Um, you probably need to create some sort of size distribution for these things. Like how does the underlying system have a limit on how long a key is or how long a value is or for metadata of like if it's a if it's a list of metadata or an array of metadata, like is there a, a a maximum bound on on how big that, that would have to be. And then the next step is, as you pointed out, and trying to lead me to, and I'm finally getting to, is then, okay, now we're going to say, say we have a data structure that's an enum, and the enum says get put, uh, or and, and puts, depending on the system, maybe you're, you're going to put a, a, a key that doesn't yet exist. Maybe that's a different operation from, from updating a key that, that must already exist in the, in the key value store. Um, for a delete Deletes. operation... Maybe you would have a delete operation that would behave differently if the key must exist prior to deleting it, um, or if you don't care um, if the key exists uh, before you delete it. Um, there are additional operations like uh, key enumeration, some sort of uh, some sort of iterator that might go over part of the key space. Maybe you want to maybe you want to test specifying a starting point in the key space, like you know if, if you're dealing with alphabetic things. Do you always start at the beginning of the alphabet, or sometimes you want to start at the letter L, you know, or the or the letter Q, right? So you can build generators with these enums um, in the same way that you build a generator for uh, for an eight bit uh, integer. And so then suddenly, the next step is then okay, we're going to create a list of these operations. So now we say generate a list of 
key value operations. And a key value operation is a combination of some generator for an enum and a generator for a key and a generator for a value. Um, and now suddenly um, you want to glue them all together because in that list of operations, you're, we're dealing with a stateful system. And so if you do a get somewhere in the middle of that list of operations, it, the, the value of that get is completely dependent on inserts and deletes and whatever else that happened earlier in the list, right? Earlier in the, in the state of the system. And you need to model that for a stateful key value store. And the quick check, uh, as originally described in the Haskell uh, paper, um, uh, and many other implementations of quick check that are out there in various languages, they, they don't support this nicely. Like you have to roll your own. And it's really, I mean, it's, it's straightforward to do for easy cases. And then um, depending on the state management problem you have, it can get more difficult. And so to have either the quick check, uh, the commercial version from Kubic, the folks in Sweden, or in the open source world uh, proper uh, based tool. Hypothesis, trick hypothesis for tool. Python. And hypothesis in Python uh, also, um, which I've used a tiny little bit. Um, I've used it a lot, yeah. Yeah, and so to have that built in to your quick to your uh, property-based testing tool, it's so nice. Oh, it's so nice. Yeah. It's so so I want to talk about what that interface looks like, but let me let me just text to take a step back for a second. I want to comment on a couple of things you said. So one of the things mm -hmm. that I don't I don't believe you mentioned that is important is um, you also probably want to have distributions of how often you do gets versus puts. Um, you probably don't want to have 100% gets and 0% puts. You probably don't want 50-50. Maybe you do. So there's probably you probably need to apply distributions to that. And also, one of the challenging tasks I always find is that when you're thinking about this sequence, like you said, a get is reliant on all of the puts that happened before or the deletes and, and puts that happened before. One of the interesting things that you have to think about is this modeling process is well, I can't randomly generate key, keys for gets and keys for puts because I might actually run a billion tests and never get and put the same key if the yes. key space is too large. And so one of the yes. things you have to think about is constraining gets versus puts. So sometimes what people will do is say, you know, I want some distribution of keys that I haven't put and I want distributions of if I'm trying to verify consistency, like strong consistency or serializability, isolation, or one of these things, something like this, whatever you're testing, you have to think about like, do I want like every single get to be like, like only an object I've put before? I probably want to try getting some things that aren't there. So you have to think about all of those things and figure out, do I put constraints on my generator for my gets? Do I put constraints on my generators for my puts? And this problem is not really uh, solved by the generator, right? Because the generator is just a data generator. This is a constraint. You, the way to think about this is I've done some commands before and I've generated some data before. And so when I start to generate the next command, I have to generate that with respect to everything that's already been done. And that's why this is like a stateful problem because I might say, if I've never written that key, I, even though my generator gave me that key, I might say, I'm going to discard it and go back to my generator to get another key because I want that key to meet some condition. Like I put it before or I've deleted it or whatever. And so this is kind of the problem that you were mentioning where you have to, you need a language or library support 
to write this in a way that it's easy to work with. And so this kind of leads us into, I guess, uh, we'll talk about kind of the state machine style of testing that QuickCheck has to support this API of restricting your generators and figuring out what commands you run next and then keeping track of the correspondence to your sequential model. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I'll just make a quick diversion to point out that if you are a human software developer who is writing a unit test or even an integration test, you have to think about these same things. Like if you're if you're writing a bog standard unit test with hard-coded uh, keys and values and expectations, you have to think about these exact same things. Like in your key space, um, you know, typically, I, I don't know, uh, I, I, I'm of a generation where, you know, the string foo, like if, if you're going to use it as a key for a key value store, foo is probably going to be one of the few keys I use. And I'm going to use it multiple times. So I'm going to use it for gets, I'm going to use it for puts, I'm going to use it for deletes. I'm going to use it all the time. But for a, a, a data generator that is, say, for a 32-bit or 64-bit integer, something simple, but it's big in terms of the total number of bits, how many test cases do you have to run that if you're using a, a, a uniform distribution in 32 bits or 64 bits worth of space or 128 or you know, name a bigger number, you will almost never use the same key twice, right? And you have the exact problem that, that you described. Um, as a human writing unit tests, you probably aren't thinking that way because you're not an evil QA person like some of the, the QA people that I've worked with in the past. And so it doesn't even it doesn't even enter your mind that I'm going to to have this kind of problem. But yeah, I mean, you're, if you're writing a unit test, their... I was gonna say if you're writing a unit test, you're probably just using the same key that you put at the top of the file as a static final, right. <laughs> like for every test, right? Every right, test exactly. is using the same key. Um, but there are very interesting things that happen when the when the keys have wide vari variability or values and and, and so on, and so. Um, John Hughes, um, in several of the video presentations that he's made over the years, and if you ask YouTube to show you John Hughes's, uh, any of John Hughes's, Hughes's talks about quick check or property-based testing in general, he will tell you, stop writing unit tests. Do not write unit tests. Write systems that will generate sets of unit tests for you. And quick check is a way of, of, of doing that. So um, I, I think he's a good evangelist there. Uh, people are interested in, in watching sort of, you know, YouTube things uh, describing uh, how to test software rather than reading academic papers. Um, so um, uh, part of the paper later talks about biasing the, the generators. And biasing is this problem that we've been talking about where if, you're, if your key space is enormous, like the strings... The, the keys, say, for example, are contiguous uh, hunks of bytes that can be 64 kilobytes in size, and you populate them with, with, with random values for each byte. Again, you'll have the problem of you, you probably won't generate the same key twice for a test or a sequence of, a sequence of operations that you're going to apply to the data store. And that ends up being really boring. <laughs> it's like super, super boring. You want to have... Uh, conflicts. You want to, to say, well, I inserted, I, I inserted the key foo, and then I want to try to fetch it using the same key foo. Um, and so um, this notion of biasing um, comes in several different ways. Another is, uh, you mentioned earlier, Chris, about 
uh, bi uh, biasing the, the distribution of the operations that you're doing. Um, that if you do 100% puts um, and that's all you ever generate, then congratulations, you're testing a write-only database. Like that's, that's kind of right. cool, right? Um, but, but really doesn't tell you a whole lot about how it behaves when, if anyone ever tries to read from it, right? So you want to have an appropriate mix of, of operations. And this is something I, I had written, uh, written on one of the pages that is a really, um, something that's really important. When testing larger systems, you get, you get experience under your belt and you're like, wow, um, uh, 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 I've noticed that certain things happen really, really super frequently, and I wish they happened less frequently. Like I'm, I'm doing a lot of, of inserts where I'm doing inserts of the same key 20 times in a row, and I'm doing that a lot. Then, then you start saying, well, maybe I want to do less inserts, or I want to do less inserts where I bias. Um, I, I have too much of a bias for keys that I've already used, and I need to, I need to, to open up the universe of possible keys um, for some more interesting, um, for some more interesting uh, random test cases. So being very familiar with the power of random, of uniform random distributions, where sometimes you will get a key that's 64 kilobytes long or, you know, or even longer, and that's a good thing, but too, much, too many of them can also be a bad thing, right? And, and that's only something that you learn with experience. Uh, um, and um, David is nodding. Um, I don't know if, if, if you've learned that lesson like you're, you know, by yourself or you're just nodding along with us here. But um, uh, if, if your quick check system allows you to, to easily inspect the shape, the distributions, the um, uh, you know, plotting a histogram or something of, of, the, 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 of, the oper of the things that are being generated, like um, what, is the, what is the distribution uh, of, of my uh, key value store operations, the gets, the puts, the deletes, uh, maybe a complete reset. Uh, later in the paper, they talk about, we're going to do a reboot, we're going to do a clean reboot, or we're going to do a dirty re reboot. Like you can make that an operation in your test to intentionally crash your which software. We did, which we did which, at Basho, which, which we we'll did, talk did about. I did a lot at Basho. I did a lot um, working on the Corfu DB system. Um, it's really, really useful. And of course, the, the Amazon people, they are essentially writing their own file system or they're writing their own, they're writing their own storage management stuff using the LSM uh, merge trees directly to disk devices. They care a lot um, about the, uh, about the, the, the sanity of their system. Um, and so you want to throw really wild, crazy um, orders of operations at system. Um, one of the, one of the side effects of that is that, you have to wait a long time, and it's one of the one of my little critiques of of the paper that they really didn't talk about like how long typically a developer might run this on on their own local machine before they decide yeah well that seems to be you know as a first pass uh, good enough uh, in terms of testing do they do they run it for run the 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 property based testing system for thirty seconds so they do it for five minutes on their local machine before they decide well it's it's good enough to see well. We'll check it into CI. CI will run systems. How long are those things running? Are they running for, for a minute? They're running for five minutes. Like getting more general ballpark areas of how much time they're spending um, on testing at various stages, that would have been really cool information to include in the paper, but I didn't see it. Right. They, they do mention um, that, uh, that, 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 that one of the reasons they choose property-based testing 
is this pay-as-you-go uh, experience where mm. developers can choose arbitrary long times to to run it before making a PR or something like that. Um, I, I wonder if perhaps part of it is that may, maybe these developers have the say as to like how long they want to run these tests for before making it official in the CI, and maybe the CI does have like a I don't know some large timeout or something. Mm. Uh, but but I, I did want to ask because um, you know like, like I think. Property based testing, you know, to the wider like engineer community, I don't think it's all that um, known. And so I'm curious about um, if you can clarify how does this biasing of um, you know sequences and structures that you're building, how does that look like? You know, like because to me it's very clear that when it comes to the data generation rules, you're kind of like defining like okay, well. You know, you have this primitive type, and you can wrap it around this other, and you can compose uh, almost like recursively, <laughs> right? Like these larger data types, uh, or these this grammar. Like I think we've all seen how to how to build, you know, grammar rules. But the biasing, the distributions, I don't think that's in, immediately clear. Uh, like I could, I could imagine, for example, on one end, is that maybe you have you assign relative weights to the grammar rules, and you say this gets applied eighty percent of the time. Uh, is it as simple as that? Are there more complex APIs for uh, defining this distribution? How does that look like, like API-wise, more or less? Um, for for hypothesis uh, in Python and for the the Erlang um, systems that I've used, um, the the generator API um, helps you with that. So if you're generating a simple integer. Um, you can uh, optionally specify an upper bound, a lower bound, um, or it, and then typically the default uh, uh, random distribution is uniform. Um, mm -hmm. And um, the behavior of these generators of the of the more advanced tools is that they don't do uniform generation right away. Um, that instead they'll bias towards zero and one, and, and if, if, if negative numbers are valid, like negative one and negative two. So they mm -hmm. do a lot of the ones near zero. And then after a few iterations, like if, if an error hasn't been hit, then they'll switch to uniform distribution. Um, and some of them, like if you're generating larger numbers, then they'll start introducing small biases towards, um, towards like uh, 256 or you know, other sort of powers of two boundaries that you know, software people tend to create bugs around, you know, the numbers um, uh, with, uh, you know, with, in those kinds of sizes. Um, and then there's, there's a whole part about test case shrinking that we haven't talked about yet, but there's a lot of strategies for, for shrinking that um, for, like, if you encounter an error where um, you're testing a, a function that takes a single integer argument and you pass it uh, an integer of 100, the the shrinking won't say okay I'll try 99 and then 98 and it won't do 100 steps working backwards towards zero it'll probably immediately go to zero and say oh well you know if zero fails poof I'm done um, or it'll try one or two and then maybe it'll start do a bisection right so the the maturity of the implementation um, will help you both on, on um, uh, behind the scenes and also explicitly so like for the for the 80% of the time thing that, that you had mentioned, um, that um, in the, the Erlang implementations, there's a particular generator function um, that gets a list of tuples 
and the tuple is a is a is a weight number, and then the the, the generator that you want. And so you can mix and match there and specify the the relative weights. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, it's both, I guess. Chris, do you have stuff to add there? No, I mean the one I mostly spent my time with was command generation. I mean, uh, yeah, the command generation, the command sequence generation. And so with command sequence generation, I thought it was in Erlang. It was like weights or ratios. It's like a ratio, right? Of one of, I think for the commands you put in the the tuple is the command and the ratio, or something, right? Isn't it? So you say like one to ten. One or the other, yeah. Sure. Yeah, um, something like that. Um, right. So I and remember so, this being really. Imp- I remember like, this being so real, in, really in, in, the, in the case in Davis case where you wanted one one particular uh, option in a generator um, to be eighty percent of the time. That mm-hmm. um, if you, it, it, it then matters um, if if your list of options is is two items long or it's ten. Um, like in the Erlang implementations, you specify like a, an absolute number, and it's like the sum of those weights. Um, so like if you really wanted eighty percent, you have to you have to as a developer, you'd have to craft the the weight so that you take into account the total sum. And then the one you want to have 80%, you actually want to be 80% of whatever the sum of that entire list is. And as your software develops and you add a few more options to that thing, and then your 80% is no longer 80%, it's like, you know, 72% or or 50%. Um, And that's kind of an ongoing maintenance problem. But, you know, that's math is hard, right? So... So um, in the um, in the Erlang version, uh, effectively the API that you're dealing with, and Hypothesis has uh, in the Erlang commercial version of QuickCheck um, from Kuvik, and uh, Hypothesis's API is almost exactly the same. Um, the way you the way you do this is you set up your data generators, your command generators, and then for every command that you run, you define preconditions, postconditions, and transitions. And effectively, your precondition says, "I have generated some command in a sequence of commands." So I say Mm -hmm. I've generated a get of key A and your precondition will say whether or not you're allowed to run that command at that time. So you might be so your generator might say get foo or get bar and you might say, well, I didn't write bar yet, so I don't want to try getting it yet. That's an example of something you might want to do. Then in your post conditions, uh, your post condition is so the, the next step is your transition, which basically says for my sequential data store model the transition that will happen if I run that command, right? So if I was running a real command against the database in my sequential, if I was running a get against my database or put against my database in my sequential model, which is a hash map, let's say, I would basically insert into the hash map. That would be my transition. So it's basically given a command, apply the transition that that command will make to the state to your sequential model. And then your post con- your post condition basically says, okay, I've run the command on the real system now, and I can perform an assertion. Basically, an assertion that says, if I ran a get against the real system, and I get value bar back, I look at my sequential version and I say, should I have gotten bar back? And so, in a database that's modeled as a hash map that provides a linearizable register where you have a single thread, uh, it, this is very straightforward. You have a one-to-one correspondence between the data that you read out of your database. Uh, and your what you read out of your hash map effectively. Now this gets a lot more complicated. Um, so we'll talk about a bunch of the systems that have done this. We'll briefly mention kind of the complexity in, in React KV, and we'll link this in the show notes. There's a great talk from John Hughes about testing React KV. Um, React KV is a uh, it was John and Ulf Norrell, and uh, React KV basically is 
is very complex because it's eventual consistency. So you have to weaken the rules a bit. And so what this means is that you can't, your database is not simply a hash map. You have to realize that under eventual consistency, well, I might perform a get and see any of the values I'd previously written, not necessarily the most recent value because I might have hit backup nodes or I might have, you know, I might have hit fallbacks. I might have not hit fallbacks. I might have written to fallbacks and I'm reading from primaries. Who knows? And so you have to start complicating the modeling. So now your hash map isn't a hash map anymore. It's, it's, it's a hash map where each value for each key is a list of values that potentially I have written. So the whole history of values I've written. And maybe now your constraint is that I'm allowed to read any of those values that I've written, but perhaps haven't deleted. And so um, you can see as, as the complexity of the system you're testing um, increases, you have to start coming up with clever ways to model things. Right, so you might model an eventually consistent store that way. Um, there's been some work on. Uh, I did some work on testing uh, causal causal consistency this way, where you actually have to start keeping track of what objects each client has read, so that you can ensure that like reads follows writes, and you have all this visibility stuff you have to track in terms of the client. And so um, it gets significantly more complex as the system you're you're testing. Um, becomes more complex. And really, the simplest case is this, like, I have a register, I'm going to model it as a, I have a collection of registers, I'm going to model it as a hash map, I'm going to have a single thread. Yeah, um, and to the, um, to the, the paper, um, the, 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 the model and implementation is very straightforward as long as there are no dirty crashes, right? And so then um, once, once a dirty crash happens, then you start getting into the weird world of of soft updates where you no longer have any hard guarantees of of what is durable but there are rules for if some things are 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 durable or visible after the after the the disk device recovers the, the shard store and the disk recovers that there are certain rules of if Something is visible, then other things must also be visible. Um, and um, at one point, they just said, for for ease of implementation, if in the sequence of commands generated there was a dirty reboot anywhere in there, they would set a flag in the model saying, you know, from this point forward, we we just we just relax, we just don't execute a whole bunch of of of, um, of invariant checks. We we don't even bother because. Reasoning about them at this stage is so difficult that it's like, ah, we're, we're, you know, we're going to throw up our hands. And that's good enough for now. Um, and then they later develop refinements of, okay, um, based on what soft updates allows us to do, we're going we're gonna, to uh, build a, a model implementation. And it doesn't actually fully match exactly what our implementation does, but it's close enough. Um, and so they, they sort of made incremental steps down that complexity chain that, you know, that is pretty analogous, I think, to what, what um, Chris was describing with the, with the eventual consistency model um, modeling and uh, causal consistency modeling, where um, you have to take more variations into account. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm going to highlight just a couple other places that I, uh, that, that it, um, that quick check and property-based testing have been used that are interesting. So um, Cassandra was using it for a bit. Um, they don't talk a, a lot about it, but there are a couple articles. I'm going to link one in the show notes about how 
Um, they had a real life bug where uh, hardware um, hardware CRCs were not working, and they were getting basically corrupted data. And so they modeled, uh, they used property-based testing to build a model where they would randomly generate like data and then randomly generate locations where they would change one byte and then have some sort of invariant that uh, a new software CRC that they had added into the database, it was like an optional feature you could turn on, that software CRC would detect the, the basically the error or whatever. So they used it in a similar place where they were testing um testing uh their data store the upper layers of their data store to verify that this crc worked as expected um i do want to highlight uh, you know there's an interesting distinction between what we were doing in in react and what this what this kind of work is doing because in react we were literally starting up the real cluster and testing the external interface of the actual cluster and we would do like get puts and we would do joins and leaves so you'd have nodes like joining and and uh, joining the cluster and data being migrated over and nodes leaving. And um, in that case, you very much want this argument bias, right? You very much want a bias applied because you don't want to like do a write and then like join a node and then like immediately remove that node and then, and then do a write and then join a node and then immediately remove it. So you do want to have like a higher ratio of get put operations to your joins and leaves. Joins and leaves are obviously more expensive and less infrequent and, and more infrequent. Um, so Cassandra was one that I found. Um, React KV, we did a bunch of work on. I have a paper partisan where uh, I use this for testing. Uh, we were we were doing fault injection. And we did some testing with this. Uh, partisan is a messaging layer for Erlang. And uh, we wanted to test. Um, it, it provides reliable delivery. And we wanted to test some of the behaviors under partitioning. And so what we did in that case was we added commands. We, we built a model of a very small key value store, get put operations. And we basically generated commands called induce partition and would randomly select a node. And we had a software way of basically inducing the partition by saying, just like drop your messages or, or reorder your messages. And uh, we were able to interleave those. And again, another case where you want to bias the commands. You don't want to be like sending one message and partitioning the network and then immediately resolving the partition. You want to have it so that your partitions are long lived and and you want to have constraints so that you don't, you know, you don't want to constantly partition everyone away from each other. You want to have like uh, a bias so that you partition into like, you know, majority minorities or um so you have like five or four in one cluster or something like this. So we did a lot of that kind of stuff. In React KV, we also used uh, an interceptor mechanism, which uh, unfortunately was named after Java technique uh, in Erlang. I think that's because Ryan came from the Java world. And which uh, where we where we had commands that would basically do co would reload code on a particular node. So we could go to node A and say, replace this code with this other code, and then we could restore it. So you could do that with commands. Your commands that you generate could be anything. They could be arbitrarily func arbitrary functions, anything. And so um, we could have the system like upgrade particular parts of the code or change version configurations or whatever. And so you can use this to induce partitions or we used it for disk bugs. So you'd say like, I'm going to replace the code so all writes coming off the disk return not found or something, and then I'll, I'll restore it back so that they start returning regular values. And in this paper, they talk about doing fault injection this way. Um, and then one other example I want to mention here is um, in React's uh, CRDT implementation, which was primarily written by Russell Brown, who did a majority of the work. 
Uh, CRDTs are a data structure designed for distribution that have these interesting merge properties where you can currently modify them and they, they guaranteed that without coordination to merge to some result. And so uh, we built a, uh, Russell primarily with Sam and me and, and Sean, built a abstract um, quick check model that could take any CRDT and a list of valid operations for that CRDT and then it would perform a bunch of mutations and then assert that some invariant about merging held true at the end. And um, a lot of people worked on that. Russell is the guy, the guy who kind of came up with the idea of building a testing thing this way so you could just plug in different CRDTs and you could share this code that would do concurrent mutations and things like this. And we verified a lot of CRDTs. We found, uh, Russell found some pretty complicated uh, bugs that involved like, you know, tens of operations interleaved in a very particular way and uh you know found a bunch of bugs in crdts um which is good to resolve before you ship something in a distributed space um guy also did some more i'll let yeah david i just had a, a, a what may or may not be a realization uh when, when, when you know i feel like we've been talking about all these all these uh uh property testing systems and um, is this how Jepson works, by any chance? Have you heard of Jepson? Is this a uh, database yeah, testing? Yeah, so we, we know it. I don't know if it actually does the command generation with... It might, actually. So it might use test.check. So test.check... Uh, so Jepson's written in Clojure, and test.check is actually um, the Clojure implementation of QuickCheck. That was written yeah. by Reed Draper, uh, who was a Basho employee that was really obsessed with Quick Check and really disappointed that uh, it didn't exist for Clojure. And Clojure has some nice things where uh, you could do the generation really, ni- the generators kind of nicely tying them to the data structures and stuff. And so I don't know if um, under the hood, I know that Jepson is implemented in Clojure, um, but I don't know if under the hood it uses the generators for commands or if the command sequences are just purely random. I don't know. But obviously, the, the approach looks very similar, right? You have some invariants that hold true. You generate a sequence of commands, and you assert that the invariants hold across um, any command sequence that you generate. It just sounded like something that could be powering it. Uh, I, I was just always fascinated, like, how does this work? Uh, yeah, anyway. so I think that these are the kind of... I think that's kind of what we're getting to, is that these are core ideas, right? The core ideas that are coming up that we're kind of seeing in this work and all of the kind of related work. And then you can kind of see it um, in the related space. There's been a, a large number because of Erlang, because Erlang has two quick check implementations. Three. It has uh, three. There's quick check and proper and trick from. Uh, oh, this from is Dreadful. the Elixir. Oh, tri- no. yeah, that's right. Yeah. So since Erlang has three quick check implementations, you see a lot of stuff and, and there's a great um set of papers at Erlang workshop all about this actually scott i'm going to bring up one so uh i'm going to bring up one maybe you'll remember do you remember the jabber paper from quick from cubic uh not very well yeah so the jabber one is uh where they invented so there's two extensions to quick check eqc temporal and pulse um eq eqc temporal is a system that they extended quick with for testing jabber um and eJabberD. And uh, for eJabberD, they wanted to assert like these invariants held over time periods effectively. So they would say, like, Jabber, primarily a presence server. They would say, like, you know, uh, 
you know, like given who was online at a particular time of when a message was sent, those messages should be waiting to be delivered to those people or or stuff like this. So this was another way of writing those assertions, but they allowed assertions to hold true, like uh, at particular points in time based on some sort of execution of commands. Right. So it's kind of an extension that adds temporality into um, the command generation and the assertion, the assertion, the properties that should hold true over those command sequences. Um, there was also Pulse, which I don't really remember a lot about. Scott, do you remember the details of Pulse? Pulse was a way of asserting control over the process scheduling inside of the Erlang virtual machine and the delivery or, dro- or I don't know if Pulse could actually drop messages, but um, could delay the delivery of messages to, to a... Um, to a process's mailbox. Um, and so it would give you the kind of control over scheduling that otherwise you would have to rely on your pthreads library or the kernel or something like that for, for doing evil things to do. Um, but because it was under quick checks control, it could then uh, uh, execute the same um, scheduling decisions uh, exactly and deterministically uh, and also subject them to the same shrinking uh, rules and properties. Um, uh, for the rest of the quick check generators. Um, and so it was really great for testing, uh, testing concurrent systems um, because you had that very deterministic control over scheduling everything inside of the virtual machine. Cool. So um, I guess the, it, there's kind of, before we kind of just kind of get back to the paper, I guess, and, and kind of just uh, wrap that stuff up. I, there's a couple of things that I think it would be cool to kind of talk about. So Scott, you have a bunch of experience with doing quick check in another language, Java for the core foo testing. I was actually using Erlang for that. Oh, you were um, using Erlang. And, the system was so a Java this, system, right? No. The, yeah. Um, so um, because there was a network protocol in talking to the core foo DB, um, it really doesn't matter what language the client was was in. If it was if it was this network client that was that was um, that was generating the commands and then um, validating the the validating the results, uh, also as a result of you know bytes coming back from a TCP socket. So the the implementation language didn't matter. From a technical point of view, it didn't matter. From a from a from a staff um, uh, point of view, it was a really big problem. The rest of the team um, uh, uh, was not familiar at all with, with Erlang. Um, they, were, uh, they were Java people, um, and they, they didn't accept my argument that John Hughes had, had urged us to make in saying, well, you know, Erlang, if, if, you don't, if, it's, if it's not the, the language that you prefer, whether it's Java or Python or, or whatever, um, you can you can try to treat it as a as a as a DSL as a domain specific language for testing, um, and uh, it didn't work well for my team. Um, and uh, it it is the same problem that the that the AWS um, uh, shard store team wanted to avoid. Like they wanted all their tools in Rust. They didn't want the second language, whether it was a uh, you know, uh, a formal methods thing like uh, Agda or P or uh, or TLA plus or plus Cal. Um, they wanted it in the exact same language as the system itself was implemented in Rust. Um, and uh, they intentionally 
avoided the the testing DSL language thing that that I tried with Corfu. Um, which I think is a fair point to make. I think that that all of this stuff is um, is is key to adoption. I'm working on a project now where um, I did a majority of the research in Python, and I'm mm-hmm. trying to get a Java team to use it. And just you know the the, the external having to do part of it in a different in a different code base with a different tool. Um, it does in, introduce friction. So, I mean, I, I completely buy that point. I, I, I think it's a, a super valid practical point and, uh, and I'm glad to see it called out explicitly in the paper. I think that's, that's great. Um, mm-hmm. So in terms of uh, what we've talked about, right. So, so they're using property based testing. They have argument bias. We've seen kind of these ideas and we've heard about how the argument bias kind of, works in the general case and how it's applied to um, this scenario by, you know, generating gets and puts and, and things like this. Um, we've heard about the failure injections. So uh, in their case, um, they're modeling these like reboots, pow- power outages, fail stop crashes, things like that. Um, we heard about how in the, in the React case, we were doing it with network partitions or, or causing um, replacing modules so that we could change return codes. So we see that that's kind of a common idea. Um, in the case of Jabber, it was joining and leaving the server. We saw in React, it was joining and leaving nodes. So you can kind of model failures this way. You can model cluster operations, all sorts of things. Um, so that's really important as well. We see that's another kind of common idea that um, that that is being used in, in several places. And then finally, I guess the last bit is really the test case minimization mm-hmm. and shrinking. Um, Scott, do you want to say a little bit about shrinking? Sure. Um, um, sh- uh, shrinking isn't... They don't use that word in the paper. I forget what you... What, they don't. Minimization. Yeah, uh, minimization, I think, is, is, is what they use instead. And then, you know, that's fine. It, it means the same thing. That if you're generating these random... Uh, these randomish things with a data generator, um, l- let's use the example of the, of the serializer where you... You generate some sort some sort of of data structure, and you want to serialize it, and then deserialize it. And the property is that the deserialized output is the same as the original input. Um, that um, if you end up generating something really complex, and the, and the property fails, then what part of the complexity actually causes the problem? Like, mm-hmm. and um, in a stateful case, the the first. The first paper that I recall describing this that Ericsson was testing a, a voice over IP gateway um, that they that they had, and they were using QuickCheck um, to test it in a stateful manner, and they ran into a case where the the entire switch crashed after see, either eighty or hundred steps of like you know add a caller you know someone speaks um you know join another call uh, join another caller some callers add some leave um it was this this interleaved set of operations and so you end up you end up with this list of 80 or 100 things like which one caused the problem or which ones which ones are relevant which ones are are completely irrelevant and if you don't have shrinking or uh test case minimization then the answer is, well, you as a human probably have to go figure out what parts, what, which steps are relevant or which pieces of data are relevant uh, and which ones are, are irrelevant. And it takes a lot of time as a, as a human to, to go off and do that. So wouldn't it be great if we had a tool that could, that could use some techniques to figure out 
Well, step number 37 doesn't make a difference if it's there or not, right? So remove step 37. Okay, let's do that again. Let's remove step 16. Oh, okay, that doesn't make a difference either. But maybe it's not whether step 16 was done or not, but maybe it's like one of the arguments that is in step 16. Um, And so maybe it's an integer. So then you start saying, well, the integer I generated was 17. Well, what happens if I generate zero instead? And so you can shrink in all these different dimensions uh, um, um, uh, uh, using systematic uh, uh, algorithms um, uh, uh, for, for doing the minimization. And in the case of this Ericsson voiceover IP gateway, um, shrinking brought it down to a series of nine steps. And they presented those nine steps to a developer. And almost immediately, the developer's like, oh, yeah, I know what's going on there. And actually, it, if I remember correctly, it was uh, a use after free, like memory allocation problem in a C library that, that, the, that the switch was using. And the data corruption happened at like step two or three. But it, you had to do like add, remove, add, remove, add, remove of a participant to get to the point where the use after free would cause a segmentation violation and then the switch crashed. Um, so the minimization in an ideal world would have stopped at like step two or three and told you that was the full thing, but you actually needed the manifestation of the, of the, the entire process crashing because of, of the, you know, use after free, um, uh, problem. But even still, the developer had said that there was no way the original sequence would have been, you know, useful (laughs) other than the brute force way of trying to narrow it down. But with quick check, being able to, to whittle that down to, nine um, uh, messages and omitting any one of them, um, the, 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 the problem didn't happen, um, was, was tremendously valuable. I, I um, think, oh, go ahead, David. I was just going to say, I mean, the, this, the, this whole minimization step seems to me to be pretty key for getting to people to, to actually listen to, hey, this is a bug that you should prioritize today. Uh, like I imagine if you give someone a, 20-page report on how exactly to reproduce this error on Tuesdays in Australia. They're they're not going to try to replicate it. But if you tell them, hey, you know, it's 15 minutes on 20 steps, then you know they'll take it seriously. And then you know, I I, I just want to call out like uh, in the paper they say that they they describe their um, operation grammar to to help with minimization. I, I don't think they call it out explicitly that. Um, smaller traces uh, are nice for 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 the you know the day to day engineers, um, but it, it seems to me like a like a big win. Yeah, yeah. So um, I th- I think the example you're thinking of is when they specify the operations, the you know the 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 get, the put, um, and reboot or whatever. Um, that when minimization is happening, the the bias is towards operations that are earlier in the list, like that 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 enum. It, it, rather than treating it as an enum, it's treated as as a as a as an ordered list, and so the the biasing will will um, will favor uh, when shrinking um, uh, uh, the enum values that are earlier in the list rather than later in the list, um, and that's that's a, a very uh, that's a very um, sort of useful technique. Um, elsewhere in the paper, um, they make a small point of saying that. System determinism um, and repeatable execution is important, and my head just explodes as being a practitioner. You use these, you use um, property-based systems a lot. Like determinism is so important, 
because if you have non-determinism anywhere in the behavior of your system, then test case minimization, the generator minimization, the shrinking goes off on wild, crazy goose chases and Mm -hmm. wastes time and worst case will spend a whole bunch of time and then give you the original uh, the, the original test failure, which, again, is probably long and complex and a person can't understand easily. Um, and the, they, they say that in like like one paragraph or maybe two paragraphs. I'm like, oh, this is so important. Do not bury this. This is important. Chris, go ahead. Yeah, the, the minimization thing I, w- with respect to non-determinism, I think that this this is a huge thing. Um, and I, I the concrete one concrete example they give in the paper is on hash map iteration in that hash map iteration is not is non-deterministic, even for the same, like on two hash maps, I have the same elements that were inserted in the same order. And so um, because the data structure can be rebalanced or whatever, and the iteration order can change. Um, I, I'll just highlight a couple places that I, that, that, that this, this problem of the, so one of the things is when you're generating the commands, you have to be very careful to not ben, to, to ensure that, any non-determinism gets kind of like reified into the command, right? So if you have a function that's going to work with some non-deterministic stuff, you really want to have that go in because when QuickCheck will perform the shrinking or even when it saves the counterexample to replay, right? Not even talking about the shrinking, but just the counterexample. When it re-executes that, it needs to ensure that any non-deterministic values are recorded in that command sequence. So if I needed to work with a random number, what I would want to do is ensure that I encode that random number into that com- as an argument to that command or something so that when I replay that execution, I use the same random number again, for instance. Um, and this is important for random numbers, time, stamps, all of this stuff. Um, d- this shrinking is really complicated. So in, in React, we had the CRDT bug. Um, the original version of the CRDT specification, quick check test that we wrote, didn't have, couldn't work with shrinking. We had implemented something wrong where the shrinking didn't work. So when we found these really long sequences that had bugs, we had to debug from those long sequences, which could be replayed, but we hadn't written it in a way where the shrinking would properly shrink the sequence in a way that it would be able to find the bug. Effectively, quick check finds a divergence and just says, like I eliminated some command and then I reran the original command and the bug wasn't there and so we can't we can't shrink it. Um, when Scott was talking about testing external systems, which is something that I also worked on, testing the APIs of certain systems, shrinking can also be a problem here. So for instance, think about if I have a cluster of nodes that I'm joining and removing nodes and issuing gets and puts, one of the problems I might run into is that if I issue a join command to the cluster through its API, that join is going to, the command is going to return immediately, but that join is going to take some non-deterministic amount of time for the join to happen, right? So we'll have to copy some data to the node and we'll have to be added to the thing and maybe some consensus occurs. And from the tester's point of view, if I'm testing on the outside interface, I don't know when that join finishes in the background. So when I'm shrinking, I might run that same command sequence, or even if I'm trying to just replay the test, I might run that same command sequence and not run into the bug because it just so happened that the join that time happened to be faster. And this is a problem when you're doing commands that alter, like for instance, join is probably a data, um, it's probably non-deterministic, but variable in time respect to how much data has been written and how big the cluster is. So if you're shrinking things by writing less data and making the cluster size smaller, then um, you're gonna run into this problem where those asynchronous operations will 
will complete differently and then it alters your execution. And so what we found was with a lot of the tests we had to write, we needed to insert artificial barriers sometimes so that we could say we don't want to run the next command until we're assured that that command has completed. And then now we can run this next command to ensure that the system is in a predictable state for the next command. So this non-determinism thing is, is a huge thing. And as soon as you start testing distributed stuff with quick check, especially, I mean, concurrent stuff is one thing. Um, distributed stuff is, is even more complicated because at least with concurrency, you probably can inspect some state on disk or something to try to figure out if something's been completed. And distribution where you're working on completely at the outside boundary of interface of the services and you can't even see what's inside of them. You're only seeing what's inside of them through their interfaces. It can become really, really challenging. So um, yeah, I think that that, that non-determinism section is short, but very, very important. Yeah. And, you know, so the, the authors are very clear up front that they are not testing other parts of, of the larger S3 system. Like there's a whole bunch of distributed stuff there and they very intentionally said, Oh man, we, well, testing that stuff is hard. And also we have a lot of other tools and other techniques for testing the, the, the larger ensemble systems. So we're going to only test uh, a single shard store uh, instance, but there's still enough non-determinism happening there. Like you write something to, to uh, a block device you have no way of predicting ahead of time how how much you know wall clock time uh, that's going to take, and of course it's going to be different for various types of disks um, and what they're doing at the time. Uh, you know, um, uh, all of that is extremely variable. And then on top of that, um, the the um, there there are several background processes that are happening. There's the internal maintenance of the of the LSM trees themselves. There's more than one, um, um, which is an additional sort of complication for their modeling, um, that there's, there's more than one tree, even inside of a single, um, uh, a single, um, uh, shard store. But then there's also other activities that are happening that as things are deleted, um, from, from the higher levels point of view, wouldn't it be great if we reclaimed the disk space for these things that we've deleted? Um, and, um, so there's a process of scanning, uh, scanning the extents, um, and figuring out which extents contain data that is still uh, live, referred to, pointed to by some tree somewhere, uh, and which extents aren't. And the ones that aren't um, represent deleted data, and we want to reuse that disk space eventually. And so there's a mechanism for copying chunks inside of an extent, which is, again, one of these contiguous hunks of, of, of disk space on the order of megabytes or a small number of gigabytes. Um, and we need to copy that out of the extent they were originally written into and into a new extent. Um, and, and then once that process is done, then we can reuse the disk space in, in, the, in the original extent. And so these operations are happening concurrently with the gets and puts um, that are coming in from, from the upper levels. And that is enough non-determinism to cause them significant test modeling problems. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've been talking for a while. Uh, is there any other things we want to say about property-based testing, or should we just kind of go to the conclusion? I mean, there's a bit in here about stateless model checking that we didn't really touch on a lot, but I feel like we've been going for a while here. Um, 
I think, well, I guess it depends on how you define the conclusion. Uh, you know, I think there's a whole section on uh, their experience in terms of like the actual interaction with engineers, as well as the fact that they're. Um, yeah, why don't we talk about the experience section now, uh, David? Do you want to do you want to yeah, give a little um, talk a little bit about the experience section? Yeah, I mean, I think I said this at the beginning of the podcast that, uh, you know, when, when I started reading this paper and the title was like, you know, formal methods at Amazon, I was like, oh, I, this, this is the section I really want to get to. Uh, and yeah, I mean, they, they talk about the fact that they're, um, I don't know what to call it, their, their formal methods artifact, the, the, the amount of code dedicated to this uh, is relatively small compared to other I guess, formal method efforts. Uh, I think it's, I don't know if it was 18 or 20% of the implementation code is dedicated to this. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say like 20% of a code base, especially of, of something as complex as this, I suppose, uh, in concrete numbers may be quite a bit, but I guess in, in compared to uh, how much code you would write if you were using uh, on a more, more, more formal formal methods or, uh, or, or other approaches, I, I guess I buy the claim that it's small enough. Um, they talk about the fact that uh, various bugs, including 16, uh, I guess six, six, 16 bugs were prevented through this approach, caught at the CI. And I think there's a reference of the possibility of others being caught earlier in the development time, but that they weren't officialized because they weren't in the CI. In fact, when I was reading this paper, that was like the first thing that came to my mind was like, how is this bug finding being accounted for? Is it is the tool instrumented? Like that would, that would have been really cool. Uh, I guess I understand it was just through the CI mostly that these are coming from. Um, I don't know. Those are the things that come to mind. Maybe let me refresh my memory. But what what about uh, y'all in in this section? What stood out, if anything? I guess. Like overall, I I felt that this was a good tour of. We've we've used both the, the stateless model checking, um, or pardon me, stateless checking, and also the property based um, property based testing, um, sort of from scratch. We didn't have a lot of experience with it, except for maybe the formal methods people, and they were they were like you know fly in consultants, or you know maybe they were cross the hall consultants, but they were treated as consultants. They they weren't long time you know long term team members, um, and we learned a whole bunch of stuff, and. Um, I have a whole bunch of comments in the paper that I left upstairs because I had to flee because the cats are getting close to dinner time and they're starting to meow into the microphone. So my apologies. Um, but um, point after point about, yeah, we, we discovered this was, a, this was a good thing. I'm like, yep, that's a really good thing to do with property-based testing in general. Um, and one of the few things that they didn't talk about were there are a couple of bugs um, that were related to buffer sizing. And another one of the things that's really, really useful, if you have any system that has any sort of buffer or any sort of deferred work, that you put that buffer size or that work queue size under control of quick check itself. So when you run into a problem, you can start shrinking things, including the size of the queue, right? So they said that in one case, there was a buffer that was, that was a number of kilobytes. I forget the exact number, but that was way too big. And most of the time, you wouldn't hit the bug. But if you had a sequence of events that filled the extent um, uh, and so you got very, very close to the end, then suddenly, then that was the, the, the only time that this bug would appear. 
Well, if you put as part of your test generator that instead of instead of extents that are you know hundreds of kilobytes or, uh, or you know whatever size it was, what if some fraction of the time the tests were using extents that are four bytes or you know or twelve bytes, and even the first thing that you try to insert is an overrun like you'll find bugs there. I've, I've, I've seen it happen, uh, you know, in my own experience. Um, and it's really valuable when you hit one, when, when, um, when a bug is found and you start doing shrinking and the shrinker says that the, the, you know, the buffer size or the, you know, the, the queue size, um, must be this number because if it's any bigger then the bug doesn't happen and you give that to developer and you're like ah yeah that's a you know that's a off by one thing or if that, that you know that's some other condition that that because i know the the internals of the design i know immediately where to look for the 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 source of the problem um it's really valuable and that's that's one of the few property-based testing lessons that i did not see in this paper um so the fact that they counted they 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 include so many others um is really cool there was one thing I just remembered that I also wanted to call out. Uh, they said, you know, they, they call out that shard store is still very much under development. I think parts of it are in fully stable API-wise. They talk about how uh, because of when they started this collaboration, uh, the API wasn't stable, that that kind of informed the way in which they did their modeling. That if they had found a fully stable system, they might have modeled things at a higher level which would have made uh, the, the bugs that were found perhaps harder to map to concrete, um, I guess, the concrete implementation of things. But that given that this was in development, they got to, you know, when I, I, my understanding is when they were writing these reference models that they were sort of circling out saying like, this is a section of the API that is stable right now. We're going to write a tiny reference model for it. And that, that made the debugging of the bugs found through this reference model, uh, sort of like easier for people to digest, or at least that, that was my understanding of that whole section of how the, the in-motion, in-development uh, piece affected their, their technique. I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Um, for taking that, that sort of very, very um, large sort of, you know, outer API view as, the, as the, that API is the only thing you test, I don't know how you would be able to exercise only the, the external API of shard store and be able to define subtle problems with, with their soft updates code. I don't mm -hmm. like you could do it and you would probably find some interesting bugs, but n probably none of them would, would involve the, the soft updates stuff. And so I think they would have had, if, if they took that approach and they started off with, let's just test the, the, the big well-known stable thing that sooner or later they would decide we got to test the soft update stuff. Like we need, we need more control over it. And, and the, you know, the, the, the top level API view isn't sufficient. I, mm -hmm. I think that's would have happened to them if they had to try that approach, but you know, it's a hypothetical, right? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just say, uh, I, I mean, the experience section, um, I think it's, it's an interesting thing, right? So, I mean, it's it's a textual description of 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 a, a kind of a realization of the fact that like databases are worked on all the time, <laughs> and that you need to have some sort of verification mechanism that that works for that, right? So, 
Sure. I mean, if we if you had specced out shard store 100 percent at the beginning and wrote some TLA and then wrote your implementation and refined it and never touched it again, it'd probably be fine. But this is a company realizing or rather, you know, this realizing in this area that we need to build something that developers can use. So it, it needs to, like, integrate into their existing tools. It needs to be in a language that they're in where they can incrementally update the specific as they write software and so um i mean this is published at sosp but i mean it's like a software engineering paper the evaluation isn't clearly enough to get into a software engineering venue because this this experience section would have to be completely different and it would have to um have probably more bugs and talk about probably interview the developers and stuff like that but um it very much comes a it is a software engineering kind of solution to the problem right saying that like if we want to do this where somebody writes a full specification in whatever p alloy or whatever and verify it, it's just not going to work um i would have liked there to be like a you know i i think that there's probably a bunch of interesting discussion that could happen around the fact that they are using other things for other parts right so they're using p for other parts and they mention other tools that they're they're using for the distributed parts and so there is kind of a question there of like, where do you draw the line where you switch the tool, right? Is this because like, what, why, if this works so well, why aren't they going to consider, perhaps they are, but why wouldn't you consider using property-based testing for testing the protocol then, right? Or testing the whatever, like why rely on the other mechanism? So I think there's an interesting discussion to be had about the success of this and why you would still use all those other tools if this works better or do those other tools work better for these other things, right? So it kind of feels like it's a first foray into the area of trying to solve a lightweight verification problem using tools that people who don't have PhDs can use, right? <laughs> uh, effectively. So, um, and I thought, you know, it's, it's as somebody who... As somebody who now works in the area of software testing and uh, works primarily, I, I work in microservices, not on protocols or, or storage. And it, it, there is this problem of how do you quantify bugs that you find during the development process, right? So if somebody runs this tool locally and they find a bug and they prevent it from ever going into CI, um, that's a bug that kind of disappears, right? And can't be quantified as part of an evaluation. And so um, luckily they have these bugs that they caught in CI and they can they can talk about them. Right. But this is kind of a challenge in that, you know, it's very easy to do systems research like we see all the time at SOSP and OSDI, where you take an open source product and you find a bunch of bugs in it and you say, here are all these bugs in this open source thing. And I open PRs to fix them and I found them with my tool. Right. That's a very straightforward way. But when you're giving something to a developer where they can fix a potential issue by altering their design before they even commit any code, it becomes really challenging to quantify. And so there's some interesting questions of, you know, could they have learned more about the tool if they had interviewed developers about the experience um, or things like this, or, or tried some other sort of evaluation technique. Thankfully they had these bugs. Um, not all of us who work in this area of software testing where you build development tools have these bugs. Uh, sometimes the bugs get fixed long before you ever see anything. Uh, or ever hear about it because the developer just runs the tool early and often. Um, so it's interesting. It's interesting to see. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, 
I thought it was I thought it was good. I thought you probably some of the expedition in the beginning could have been reduced to make a, a longer section here. I feel like this is the section that's really exciting to me to to learn more about. But I mean, that's probably just because it's my research area. Should we move on to the uh, the positives, the 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 takeaways? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I'm I'm away from the meowing cat, so I don't have what I wrote as my positive and negative. So I'll have to go by memory. Okay. <laughs> well, memory is fine. God, do you want to go first, or do you need time to recall your memory? No. Um, what the negative ones were um, again to the point of of keeping track of what bugs were were found um, that. They say that you know we we caught these sixteen at you know the at the stage of testing, but there were probably more that happened earlier in the development cycle. But if if you go back and and read the earlier sections, there are two bugs that happen and are described exactly that same way. That this was a problem that was noticed um, before that stage in the in the testing cycle. So the the editors could have sort of easily cleaned that up and and made things a, a bit clearer. Um, and the other was, uh, again, um, not making it very specifically clear that we're not using a, a, a traditional operating system file system um, uh, uh, as, as, as part of our, uh, of, of our implementation. Um, uh, I had to read between the lines to, to, to really get that. And if that's the level of nitpicking that I'm doing on the paper, um, you know, that, that seems to be a pretty good sign as a, you know, as a practitioner um, and someone who's pretty familiar with with all the techniques um, uh, used in the paper, yeah. David? Um, oh, wait, no, Scott, so you do, those were your positives and negatives, and you wouldn't change them after the discussion? You feel like you're standing firm on your original? No, no, I, 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 they, the negatives still piss me off, and I'm still um, uh, to a small degree. Um, and the positives, um, uh, I think, are are still really substantial. Yeah, so uh, I, I find it interesting that uh, only your negatives were only really about the authorship of the paper. <laughs> they writing. Yeah. It was not about... I, I'm, single I'm also married to... Yeah, I mean, I'm also married to an editor, so I pay attention to stuff like that, so... Uh, yeah. Uh, David? Yeah. Um, my, my, my positive is... Um, is that well? You know, before we had this conversation, my positive was that uh, I think this is a paper that different people from different communities can look at and sort of like get something out of it that they're really hungry for in a way. Uh, like you know, like if you're if you're someone um, who's interested in like storage systems, databases, you know, I think that that whole dense section on uh, shard store, uh, I think is interesting. If you're someone who's into you know, software engineering research, you know, there's a whole bug finding component of it. Uh, if you're looking for like a practical recipe of how to, um, how to introduce slowly, but without much friction, um, formal method type things in an engineering team, that's something you can grab from there. Uh, so, so I really enjoyed that, that, that holistic aspect of it. I don't think I would change that from after our discussion. I think that remains like I think, you know, we all three we come from you know different backgrounds, and I think we all found something very enjoyable out of it. Uh, with respect to my, uh, my my negative takeaway, um, I wrote that. Well, I wrote at first that 
I just wanted the whole experience section to be lo longer. <laughs> like, you know, like from the title, I, I, I assumed wrong uh, that 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 was going to be the bulk of it. So like the, the experience of getting this team onboarded and the things that worked, the things that didn't. Um, and, and I guess, you know, maybe that's better suited for, for a blog post. I don't know. Um, after our discussion, and perhaps I have recency bias, uh, you know, uh, I think we talked about all these interesting things with property-based testing uh, that I didn't know about. And I think that, that would have been great to, to see uh, referenced uh, in, in just somewhere in the paper as like here's related work that, that is uh, around this space. Um, but, but again, you know, like, I, I think, I think it's, uh, the, the related work that is there is perfectly, uh, you know, suitable for, for what it's looking for as well. Um, okay. So my, my original positive was, I thought it was really strong. I really liked that it was a practical solution to a verification problem, a testing problem that uh, really considered the developers. I think that was a really important part of this paper. Um, it really, I think the story is about the is is really early on. There's a lot of exposition on on talking about how it's so many lines of code and it's so much and testing the things is so challenging and applying verification is so challenging. Um, I think it could have been framed a little bit better at the beginning to say, like, you know, it's not this is a socio-technical problem, right? Like with a million researchers and formal methods, we probably could write a whole specification for this thing. The challenge is that we want to have like a single engagement to get people to use a thing. And then we want to walk away and have them be able to maintain that thing. And so I think that really so there's, there's a lot of technical work and the venue obviously influences this. You're at SOSP. They want to hear all the nitty gritty details and the bugs. Um, but I think that the the kind of meta theme that I'm taking away from the paper is that it is a socio-technical problem of verification. You have to consider the, the developers who need to make, make changes to the code and keep this thing running and, and integrate it into their workflows. And that's just not going to happen if you if you give them TLA and plus Cal or whatever. It's just not going to happen. So I think that... Um, I think that it could have been better framed with respect to that. Um, and I think that at a different venue, it would have been. Um, if it was at a software engineering venue, it would have been different. If it was at a cloud computing conference, it probably would have been different. Who knows? I don't know. But uh, it's at SOSP, and so that's you write an SOSP paper to look like SOSP. Um, I do feel like uh, my negative, which I'm, I, I'm going to reframe slightly, but it's basically the same. Uh, it doesn't do enough justice for the related work. Um, people have been using property-based testing for stateful systems a long time. I mean, in their example of modeling a data store as a hash map or, or whatever, like, I mean, that's like a textbook example that comes out of the quick check documentation about like, like you know, you want to model like a database, you model key value, so you can model it as a, as a, as a dictionary. So, um, I do think that the, there could have been a little bit more justice done to the related work. Um, I'm going to like, I'm assuming that's not negligence. Like I said, at the top of this podcast, I think this is a problem of the fact that all of that interesting work was published at venues that people just don't know about. And I think that that's kind of a, a bigger problem here in that there are all of these interesting ways people have figured out how to test databases and do fault injection and do all of this stuff. 
and nobody knows about any of it because there's like one Cassandra blog post that you literally needed to type. I couldn't even type quick check. I had to search for like quick theories because that's the implementation they use to find the blog post. So like, you know, you can't even search for, they're not even using, some of these things are not even using property-based testing. Some of them are just saying quick check. Some of them are saying different terminology. Um, you know, and so there's this stuff, it's hidden in blog posts. The bash of stuff is YouTube videos. There's like two or three papers at Erlang workshops that were like three years apart. And like, you have to know exactly the right search term to find it. Right. So, and no one even really ever wrote a paper about just like Erlang quick check. So I feel like, um, I don't know if that's a negative of the paper or really just like a commentary on, on the fact that stuff that gets published at these smaller venues, no matter how groundbreaking or interesting or practical, just kind of doesn't ever get seen by anybody. Um, so I think that's kind of a negative because I do think that if they had leveraged some of that stuff, this paper could be tighter, right? The beginning could be tighter because we could say, here are some examples of what people are doing and here's how our stuff is different. They wouldn't need three paragraphs to explain test case minimization if they could just reference somebody who's already done it. They don't need all of this stuff on argument bias and explaining it in such detail if they just reference something that says like, here's like shrinking. It's been doing, it's using all of these systems. And then you could have talked a little bit more about the developer experience and integrating it. And does shrinking really work? Does the test case minimization take a difference? Is it hard to make things deterministic so that you can use test case minimization, right? There are all these other interesting questions about how people really use this thing that just aren't answered and could could have a better experience section. Um, that said, I mean, you know, it's a pretty minor criticism of the paper. Um, I don't know. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of my my takeaways. My positive negative. Cool. OK, so we've been talking for a long time, and uh, I think that we'll probably end it there. There's a lot more we could probably say about the crash consistency stuff and some other aspects of the paper. But I think we spent quite a bit of time talking about this, and we let the conversation take us to a bunch of random places. So um, thanks a lot for listening. I just want to thank uh, David and um, Scott for, for joining and taking time to read the paper and chatting about it. Um, I think it was great. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. It's been great.